Good evening. Let's turn to number 546 in our hymnal, Jesus, I, my cross, have taken all to leave and follow Thee. Let's stand as we sing together, please. may be seated. Let's come to the throne of grace together, and we'll just give the Lord the thanks and praise of our hearts. Our gracious, gracious God, we come in the name of our Lord Jesus to seek Thee afresh. What a wonderful thing that we may call Thee Father, Abba Father, and that we are adopted into Thy family as sons and daughters by faith, by the blood, by the covenant of grace, and that we are eternally united to Thee. Thank You for the love that You 
have poured out unto us. Thank you for the saving grace that you have granted to our souls to lift us out of the pit of sin and to make us to be princes and priests unto God. We pray tonight, O Lord, that you'll draw near to us. We pray that you will not be afar off, but that you will come and grant a particular blessing to our own souls, that we might be changed more and more into your likeness, and that we will truly be conformed more and more into your ways. We thank Thee for the perfect garment of righteousness that our Lord Jesus has put upon us. We thank Thee for that perfect snow-white garment by which we stand before Thee, sinless and holy. But we also pray tonight that You will make us holy of heart, that Thou will take away every worldly, wicked way, and grant that You will burn out of our souls every lust, every worldliness, everything that grieveth the Spirit of God, and grant, Lord, that You will breathe into us the very Spirit of holiness. We desire fellowship with Thee. We want more of Thee in our lives, but we confess that we need, therefore, to die to self. And so we pray that You will, by the Holy Spirit, put to death the motions of sin and cause that new life to bubble up as water out of a well. We think of that wonderful statement, He that believeth in me, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Lord, we're thirsty for that water tonight, that life-giving power and inner grace of the indwelling Savior. We pray that you will Remember your people who have particular needs tonight. O oh Lord, we cannot walk in everyone's shoes, but Lord, you are the gracious, compassionate friend to each one of us. And I pray that you will put your loving arms around your people to comfort and cheer, to strengthen, and to help us on. Thank you, Lord, that you've called us to be pilgrims even in this wicked world. And we ask that you will hold us up and lead us on and one day bring us home. Thank you that heaven is awaiting. Lord, grant that we might put ourselves in your hands afresh this evening. Remember the cause of Christ in this world. We ask thee, O Lord, that you will bless every effort to extend the gospel. Even in those nations that are hostile toward it, in those nations that seem so close to it, sometimes, Lord, it pleases Thee to laugh at the ungodly, to even send revival where there is nothing but atheism. We think of what You've done in Nepal. Lord, would You multiply that again in India? Multiply that again in Bangladesh. Multiply it again in Tibet, amongst those peoples that have known so little of the name of the Lord. We pray for the light of the Savior 
to shine into hearts. And then, Lord, we think of our own city and our own country. We cry to Thee, Lord, for the, the masses as we pass them on the, on, on the 401 to and from church, the masses that are on the broad road. Lord, grant that You will lead us to some soul even this week, that we might have grace and power and unction to tell them of our Savior. Grant, Lord, that You will use us in Your kingdom work. Bless this congregation. Bless the eldership. Bless the Reverend Saunders. We pray that You will lead this congregation on from strength to strength. Thank You for Your people here and what You're doing through them. So hear from heaven and continue to minister to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 566 is our next hymn. 566, How I Praise Thee, Precious Savior, that Thy love let hold of me. Thou hast saved and cleansed and filled me, that I might Thy channel be. 566. And again, we'll stand to sing, please.
thank you, and very nice to see our brass contributors here uh, enhancing the sound, drowning out the singer in the pulpit lest he leads people astray in the music. So we're glad that we're all in unison here tonight. Great to see everyone here. What an attendance we had this morning. I was greatly blessed to see so many, and then now to see you back again. And I trust that you will be encouraged and blessed. Our Bible reading tonight is in 1 John chapter 1, the book of 1 John and chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard and we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us and truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. This, then, is the message which we have heard of Him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. Amen. May the Lord bless this Word to your heart, and may we each be helped tonight as we consider the Word of the Lord. Mr. Robinson, again, is going to come and to give us the announcements, and I'm going to leave out this magazine for him. All right. It's a little hint because I'm forgetting things, so I just want to uh, remind you of a few announcements. We've already covered them this morning, but we welcome each one here tonight again. We thank the Lord that the weather is cooperating with us, and the, the real bitter cold has passed. Maybe that's it for winter. So um, we uh, know that spring is coming. I think it's next month, and so uh, that sounds good. So uh, also welcome to those that are online, and especially any of the body that's visiting here uh, to be with us tonight. We appreciate your presence with us. Um, just a few items, or as you've already gathered, our pastors in uh, in Vancouver, and there's a very important election for a, a new pastor taking place shortly, and um, so we pray the Lord will undertake in all those details, and he will be back with us uh, 
sometime tomorrow. So bearing that in mind, then uh, come Wednesday, our prayer meeting, and the pastor will be with us in, in, in DV, as, as we often say, and uh, he will be taking the uh, prayer meeting at the usual time of 7.25. Um, also, I admitted this morning to mention that Thursday night is our uh, session and board meeting at 6 o'clock and 7.30, respectively, and um, uh, we uh, know that at this time of the year we're much engaged in preparing the financials, and I'm trying to keep in the background, so we are um, uh, undertaking to train those in the way of preparing financial statements. So that's on, ongoing, so that'll be a major issue. And also on Saturday, I know that certain persons are not going to be very happy if I miss that one. So there is that uh, just a reminder of the family skating on February the 11th at, from 11.30 to 12.30 at uh, Canlon Sports Arena, which is just north of, uh, of Finch and Markham. And um, if you go down and sign, uh, sign your name onto the sheet, it'll be blank. Just because it was um, corrupted this morning, the original sheet, there are names there. So uh, you wouldn't be the first person to put your name down. So we do encourage you to put your name down and join. If you can't get out and skate like myself or a few other people, at least uh, you can there be entertained by those that are on skates. Um, I remember somebody from the uh, way back a long time ago who hadn't skated for a while, and he, he was holding on to the boards. And uh, he says, I don't think I've uh, lost the knack. And, um, and it was quite humorous. So uh, I'll not mention the person's name. Some of you, that will trigger something in your memory. But uh, come along, and there'll be fellowship afterwards. Um, I guess I'm assuming uh, back in the church here for uh, a get-together. And uh, that cost is $10, and see Jonathan McAnally uh, on those details. And our pastor... Should be uh, back again, Lord willing, next Sunday for our morning and evening services and uh, the other activities. I think uh, those are all the issues. And we are again appreciate Brother Gallagher, Pastor Gallagher, to be with us again this morning. And remember the current, because I uh, just remind you folks, I think you've seen this, uh, it's available, the current version of the current. And uh, please pick one up. Thank you very much. Well, if you see Mr. Robinson on skates, would you please take a photograph for me? I would more like see him on water skis after being growing up in Enniskiln, a lot of water around that part of the world. But uh, on ice might be a whole different matter. Now, you have one elder that has come uh, a victim of ice and hockey, so I don't think it would be good to have any more elders injured in that manner. Uh, so play it safe, whatever you may choose to do on that occasion. As I said this morning, uh, Beulah and I always enjoy uh, the fellowship of this congregation, and I count it an honor to come and help out to fill the pulpit from time to time. I hope uh, you don't think it's like the bad penny that keeps turning up. I was thinking, what was that bad penny? It was most likely a counterfeit. And I hope that that certainly you're not experienced with having me in the pulpit here, but that we will be found faithful to the message and have the Lord's help in all things. And we trust the Lord will lead you on. We commend you again for the week of prayer that you have had uh, for the commencement of this new year. And surely the Lord is already 
uh, answering and strengthening and adding to the church. It was great to meet some who were in the church today for the very first time, and that's always a thrill. We have one more hymn uh, before the message, and we're turning to 581. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Ye soldiers of the cross, lift high his royal banner. It must not suffer loss. 581. to pray. O oh Lord, how seldom we stand up for Thee. Forgive us, Lord, for the many wasted opportunities, and grant that You will put a bold spirit within our hearts that we might lovingly, winningly tell of our Savior. We ask that You will truly make us lights in a darkened world. And may you be glorified as we seek to serve thee even in the week to come. Now speak to us through your word and let there be a, a pointer or two for every soul. We ask in our Savior's name. Amen. 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 
we free Presbyterians call ourselves New Testament Christians. We believe that the church must always go back to first century Christianity. We do not wish to follow the corruptions of men nor the traditions that creep into the church that are anything but Christian. The Protestant Reformation in particular was a back-to-the-Bible movement, and that is required in every generation and in every fresh endeavor as we seek to serve the Lord. The Puritans, the nonconformists, they were battling to weed out those traditions that were man-made and to seek the purity of the gospel and the truth of Christianity. And so, we ask the question tonight, are we really New Testament Christians? Are you? Do you think of yourself in that, in that way? That tomorrow morning, I'm going to go out and serve the Lord. I'm as a New Testament Christian. Well, there are a number of things we need to answer before we might be boldly saying that. Firstly, how did the first, first century Christians meet? How many were there? What did they believe? How did they worship? And why were they so persecuted? And then another question is, were they really faithful? Were they the people that we should be emulating and praying that you'll make us to stand up for Jesus as those first century Christians? So let's answer some of those firstly. Now, this is all introductory now. Allow me. Give me some space tonight. You've come a long way. You've joined in in this meeting. I, I need some space to, to broaden the sweep of our understanding of what it is to be in line with a first, first century New Testament Christian. So, how did they meet? Well, they mostly met in homes. If you go to the second epistle of John, you will see his letter to the elect lady who no doubt had the church in her home. And there are many, I counted five other references in the New Testament to the church in their home. You see, they didn't have purpose-built buildings. They didn't have the money nor the luxury, and sometimes they were on the move. Therefore, they met where they could. Lydia, we know, opened her home to the preachers of the Word. Now, churches and home are, are, are nothing new. In times of persecution, uh, they have been necessary. And tonight, there are around the world churches meeting in places. We cannot say they're not always secret, but they're not advertising it either. They're not drawing attention to themselves. They are quietly gathering to worship the Lord. Now, at first, in the early chapters of the book of Acts, you'll find that the apostles preached in synagogues. That was a wonderful opportunity. It was a ready-made pulpit. 
You see, our New Testament church today is very much in line with how they met as synagogues. Now, not in the temple. The, t- the, the synagogue was the place for the reading and the expounding of the Word. And there seemed to be some liberty and freedom for someone to stand up and just take over the Word and speak and expound on it. And the apostles did that. But it didn't work for very long. And you read in Acts 19 that they were forbidden to speak in the synagogues, and Paul moved them to the school of Tyrannus. Now, whether that was a, an academy, a place of education, but it was certainly off Jewish soil to a place where they could have the liberty and the freedom to preach the whole counsel of God. And that's one of the great principles. We want the freedom, the liberty, to preach the whole message without any restriction. Now, we're very blessed tonight to be meeting in a church building. We're blessed to gather together with one another in a public place and have all the liberties that we are enjoying. But do not despise small gatherings. Do not despise the homes that are open where a few others come on board and they sing and pray and study the Word, and that becomes a little church. The majority of our free Presbyterian churches in Nepal meet in homes, especially in the country areas, in the mountains. Many of them just meet in one another's homes. They have visiting preachers. There might be evangelists and uh, preachers that are on the move. And we ought to rejoice in that. It's not the size or the luxury of the building. It's the delight of one another to meet in Jesus' name and worship Him. Now, the next question we asked was, how many were there? How many Christians were there in the first century? Now, we know that there were significant numbers in Jerusalem. 3,000 converted under Peter's preaching, 5,000 a few chapters later. And so, very quickly, there may have been 10,000 Christians in the city of Jerusalem. But at Passover there would be at least a million people in Jerusalem. And do the math, 10,000 would be 1%. That's not very high. You could go a long way before you meet another Christian. And so it was a lonely experience. It was a radical thing to stand up and say, I believe the message that is in the Lord Jesus. I have a handbook at home that tries to cover these areas of the expansion of Christianity in the first centuries. In the first century, there is in the Mediterranean world 40 dots, red dots in my book, that represent 40 churches. That's the first century. And many of them small little pockets of people. 
That was first century Christianity. Then in the second century, it goes up to about a hundred red dots. In North Africa, and as far as Spain, Italy, into France. And then in the third century, there's about 350 red dots. And these are perhaps larger congregations. And so while Christianity expanded phenomenally in two to three hundred years, the first century was very lonely, very burdensome, and a great trial. There are more Christians tonight in Canada than we can count. I don't know of any way of ascertaining how many Bible born again Christians are in Canada. Strangely, we bump into them, don't we? I think in the first century, if you had bumped into another Christian, you would have thought that was a great day. And it is for us always a wonderful thing to meet another Christian. I went for a check on our vehicle and an oil change, and I noticed in the corner of the shop was a little rack with gospel tracts. Wonderful to see it. In Barry, there are churches being planted in this country today. There are whole peoples moving to Canada who are being introduced to the gospel. This ought to be very encouraging for us. Now then I ask, what did those first century Christians believe? Well, they certainly believed in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. That really was the core of their message. Christ died for us, and He rose again for us for the remission of our sins and to give us glorious hope. They believed the Scriptures of the Old Testament. The New Testament was little by little being written, and we'll learn about that later. They took the message of the Lord Jesus, they studied the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament, and they said to their people, this is not really new, this is the fulfillment of the old. And they brought their Bibles out, and they became Bereans to search the Scriptures to see if these things were so. They preached also what became known as the apostolic faith. It wasn't personal opinions, Paul's idea versus John's idea and Peter's idea. No, it was one apostolic doctrine. I'm going to take you to 1 John 1 just to look at that in the opening verses. Verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard. Now, notice the we. It's plural. It's more than one. It's not just John. It's something that the apostles have seen. We have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, 
and our hands have handled of the Word of Life, because it was the message, united message, of the apostles. They were all taught by Him. They walked with Him. They saw the miracles which He did. They witnessed His sufferings, and they witnessed Him raised again from the dead, and it was the united apostolic faith. If you look at the book of Jude, you will see that it is called the common faith. And down in verse 3, Jude 3, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation. Now, that didn't cheapen it. It didn't mean it was just, you know, every day, every, everything to all men. It was the united doctrine of the apostles. And so it was the faith. One gospel, one scheme of doctrine, one covenant of grace running through the whole Bible, fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. And they were called to proclaim that wonderful message. Now, are you a New Testament Christian? Are you claiming to be a Christian on just what you think, on what you believe, or in some subjective personal experience that you have had? We are living in an age of such confusion. When people say, I don't care what the Bible says, I've had an experience. That's not New Testament Christianity. It's not the gospel that in nearly all cases leads to destruction. Then we come to the question, how did this first, these first century Christians worship? Does it look anything like what we're doing tonight? Would they have had a piano? Would they have had an organ? Would they have had a Mrs. Kim? Would they have had all these brass instruments? I dare not even try to name them all. Would they have had hymnals? A projector? One of the great mysteries of our generation. Wonders of technology. But these are just the peripheral things. The real thing is that they sang hymns. First century Christians were singers. They sang hymns. And there are some hymns still recorded. Some of them have been taken from the catacombs and other sources. And we know in Colossians 3 that they were to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. After they had the Word of Christ dwelling in them richly. As Colossians 3.15 comes first, that's let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, and then sing. You sing the Word. You sing the truths of Christianity. And a hymn is really only a, a Christian hymn if it is true to the message, if it helps God's people to learn and remember and express the great wonders of the gospel. If we do that tonight, are we New Testament Christians in how we worship? 
They preached from the Scriptures. They had a teaching ministry. Let's go back to Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. Verse 41. And they that gladly received His Word. The things that transpired here in Acts 2 and Pentecost in Jerusalem that produced so many of these New Testament Christians was in response to the ministry of the Word. And that's our fundamental. You don't want to join a church where the Word is minimized, where it's all entertainment and it's all excitement, but the Word is lacking. There's the ministry of the Word. They also worshipped in the fear of God. And I have to mention this one, the fear of God. If you go back to verse 38 in chapter 2, Acts 2, Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so on. And the fear of God came upon them on that very occasion. And they gladly received the word, were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Uh, verse 43, that's the one I'm looking for. You knew I was scrambling, didn't you? You see, you're such a kind congregation. You didn't say, uh-oh, you could have, couldn't you? But here we are, 43. And fear came upon every soul. It would be really hard to define what that exactly means. But it must have led to a greater degree of reverence, respect, Fear came. When you ask someone, are you walking in the fear of God? Are you living in the fear of God? And then the next question is, are you worshiping in the fear of God? That ought to be, that ought to mark our worship, that we're doing so in the fear of God. How will that look? Well, if you go to Scotland, if you go to Holland, you will find people who are very solemn, very solemn. Maybe New Zealand, where a lot of these people have emigrated and they have established such worship. You go to Barbados, you might find different culture, different attitude. And the fear of God might look somewhat different. Culture comes into it. A person's upbringing comes into it. But if you ask them one to one and say, are you worshiping in the fear of God? Are you doing so in the flesh? Or by faith in the glorious God of your salvation? There can only be one answer to that. 
no matter what the culture, no matter what the history, no matter what the background. Are you worshiping tonight with faith in the glorious God that has redeemed your soul? Now, the Old Testament word for glory, it simply means weight. It's no light thing to come into the presence of God. It's no light thing to use His name and to worship Him. Now, in this chapter, you'll see that in this New Testament church or Christianity, they had baptism, they had communion, they received the apostles' doctrine, they had unity of believers in verse 44, they had liberality or generosity in verse 45, and then in verses 46, 47, they had joy. They continually, daily, with one accord in the temple breaking bread from house to house. See that again? House to house. Not church to church. Not church building to church building. House to house. Simplicity there. Eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Praising God and having favor with the people. Now, I was studying this on Friday, and Friday, you remember, was the cold day. So I moved down into the basement, and we have a nice gas fire down there, and I pulled up the chair, and I pulled up my little table. We have a table that flips up that you can sit at it from the chair. And I was, and Beulah came down for something, and I, I said, how am I going to get into this and not get bogged down in the depths. It tells us here that they did signs and wonders. So why are free Presbyterians not doing signs and wonders if we be New Testament Christians? Well, there's a whole lot of things we're not doing. No signs, no rituals, no icons, no pictures, no crosses, no jewelry, no priests, no returning to the Old Testament sacrifices or to Old Testament ceremonies. Levitical worship is out. Nor do we worship God with ecstatic tongues. Why not? Because Pentecostals don't. Pentecostals don't worship God with the tongues of the New Testament. In the New Testament, the gift of tongues or speaking in other languages was to reach men in their own native language. And that wonderfully happened. And that was the explosion of evangelism. But it was the apostles that did so not the common people. Those were apostolic gifts which died with them. 
When a Pentecostal decides to be a missionary to a foreign people, one of the first things he does is go to mission or language school. Why? Because they can't do what they, the gift they had in Acts 2. They don't raise the dead. And the life expectancy of a Pentecostal is not very much different from a free Presbyterian. So Pentecostals don't do signs and wonders that they had in the New Testament. Those were gifts that were unique to the apostles. And when they were off the scene, they died with them. In the New Testament church, there was simplicity, community, evangelism, and love. Those were the things that excelled. And that ought to be our worship tonight, simplicity. I look around this building, I don't see icons, I don't see crosses, I don't see jewelry or pictures or any paraphernalia that is for the eye attraction. We are a Protestant, biblical, New Testament church. Simplicity, community. That's why we don't depend on Zoom for everything. We believe in the gathering of the saints, coming together, rubbing shoulder to shoulder with hugs and handshakes. Hopefully, COVID's going away. We can do all those things again. Next question I come to then is, why were these first century Christians so persecuted? We know that John, and we were reading there in John 1, that John was exiled to that rocky isle of Patmos for the Word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. But why? John, the apostle of love, the man that you would deem to be harmless and to be inoffensive, what would get under the skin of the Roman pagan world that such a brother and many others were, were so despised that they were shipped off into exile on an island? Well, in my time allowed tonight, I'm going to give you a few pointers. First century Christians were persecuted because of their evangelism. They couldn't be quiet. Oh, they had been commanded over and over, speak not again in this name. But they said, we must obey God rather than men. They were bold and brazen about their faith. They were also persecuted because the Roman world, as was the Greek world, a world of polytheism. But Christians, they were narrow-minded. They were monotheists. They believed in only one true and living God and His Son, Jesus Christ. But Romans, they worshipped 
all manner of gods, the gods of the, the stars in the sky, the sun god, the moon god, the gods of animals, and the gods of ancient ancestors. And who are these Christians? They won't even bow down to our gods. Roman emperors at times consider themselves to be demigods, that God had so privileged them and so blessed their victories and their triumphs that now they should be worshipped as a god. And of course, no Christian would bow to a Caesar or any emperor and give him worship. Many Christians therefore faced the choice of bow to Caesar, call him Lord, or die. And many chose martyrdom. The very term in Greek, huios Christos estens kurios, meant the death sentence. The Colosseums tell their story, and the savagery and the butchery of the Romans against the people of God is legend. They were persecuted for Jesus' sake. This became, by the way, one of the most thorny questions in the early church. What do you do with a Christian who was bright and earnest for the Lord, was faced with death, and in weakness denied the Lord? And there were quite a few. When they faced death, they did not have the strength to lay down their lives. And they did whatever it took to save their skin. And when that became public knowledge, the pagans mocked them, and the Christians pitied them. But when the persecution was over, what do you do with that brother or sister who was so bright for the Savior but has denied the Lord? The Bible says, and Jesus said, that if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. The church, the early church, was so troubled by it, the churches split over it. And many were so burdened and so felt so pathetic having denied their Lord, had the church door closed to them. But thankfully, others did not. And there were those who remembered Peter. Peter who denied his Lord. Peter who three times cursed his Savior, and the cock crowed thrice. And Jesus met him and restored him and used him. And I'm sure there were many of those when they were challenged with the sword 
to call Caesar Lord, and in weakness given, we're later thankful for the example of Peter that the Lord is of great pity and full of mercy. Maybe tonight you have denied the Lord in some way. Maybe you had an opportunity to speak for the Lord, and you missed it. You remained silent, and you felt terrible after that. You were not at peace with yourself. You felt the prompting of the Spirit of God to speak up and stand up for Jesus. But you remained silent and you backed away from that opportunity. And when you got down to pray after that, you felt and knew that you had grieved your Lord. Well, we do rejoice that there is restoration. There's cleansing in the blood. And there are many that have denied the Lord in various ways, whom He restores and brings into fellowship again. I move on. Why were these Christians so persecuted? Well, they became the fall guys. They became the people who got the blame for so much. In AD 64, when Rome was burned, the Christians got the blame. And from that point on, Nero went after Christians, and that was the beginning of the catacombs, where the church went underground. And everything that happened, harvest, field, blamed the Christians. It was a most difficult time to be a Christian. Another reason is that the devil stirs up persecution against Christians. In 1 John 5, 19, we are told that the whole world lieth in wickedness. And that means in the control of the wicked one. We've got to realize the spiritual battle we're in and the hatred of the world and the persecution of the church comes from Satan himself. Now, were all of these first century Christians faithful? I've already answered that, haven't I? I've gone ahead of myself. I've answered that one. But thousands were. Thousands upon thousands were true to their conscience, to their Lord, and they suffered greatly. Another reason was due to false doctrines. And here in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, you will see that there became a division in these young early Christians. Chapter 2, 18, little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out. 
that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. What a tragedy. People that you sing with and you pray with and you encourage along, and then suddenly they break away. Now, this this time was the sowing of the early seeds of Gnosticism, false teachings concerning the person of the Lord Jesus. And John the Apostle, he became the man of the hour to lead the first century church in the face of these false teachers and to defend the person and the ministry of Christ. He became the strong defender against error, antichrist, persecution, discouragement, and all the troubles that first century Christians faced. And how tragic when God's people become divided in the midst of it. I have begged already for a little bit of space tonight to say some of these things about New Testament Christians. Would you give me a few moments just to give you a little sketch of the Apostle John? We know a lot about Paul. Paul was an action man, a traveler. He was a pioneer. He was a father of churches. He was a man that was in control and in in charge of so much. But John, in comparison, he's the quiet one. And yet, as I said, he was the man to lead the church in this early first century, to defend the church, defend Christ, and to preach the gospel. So, we need to know a little about him. We do know that he was one of the youngest of the apostles. He was probably in his twenties when he was called to leave his father Zebedee and to leave the boats and the nets and to, along with James, become a fisher of men. He would have been probably under 30 when the Lord was crucified on the cross at Calvary. And it is certainly believed that he lived in Jerusalem until about 58 AD, until the death of Mary, the mother of Jesus, to whose care John was entrusted. He possibly lived on in Jerusalem until A.D. 66. He later went to Ephesus, and he was certainly in Ephesus by 68. And we certainly know that he was no longer in Jerusalem in A.D. 70 when Titus, the Roman general, destroyed the city. The Christians had been forewarned. When you see the Roman legions escape, flee, and John was already out. Now, that was a time of trouble for Judaism, but it was also a troublous time for the Christian church. 
It was a time when there was no longer refuge, no longer to hide under the skirts of Judaism whatsoever. They were annihilated as an institution. Their temple was gone. Their city was gone. They were a million had been slaughtered. A quarter of a million shipped off as slaves. And now Christians lay exposed on the very surface of active evangelism and worship. John led the church through that time. It is universally allowed that John spent the last part of his life in Asia Minor, especially the city of Ephesus. And that would make it over 30 years. 30 years serving the church as an apostle, and by this time, or very soon, he would be the remaining apostle. All the others would have died earlier deaths through persecution. And so he ministered in Asia Minor, and he became, and I quote here from Patrick Fairbairn in the Imperial Bible Dictionary, and he said, John became the great center of authority and spiritual light in Asia Minor, and especially the opponent of those floating notions and fancies which ultimately ripened into the Gnostic heresies. Now, that agrees with what Paul said to the Ephesian elders, that out from your midst will arise false teachers. In Ephesus, the very city where John resorted and ministered. Now, John later suffered persecution under the emperor Domitian, and he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos in his old age around approximately 95 A.D., when he was a very old man. And there he received the revelation, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And most likely, in A.D. 98, he wrote John's Gospel, the Gospel of John, and he would have written these three epistles, 1, 2, and 3, that we've been reading here tonight. John died a natural death while back in Ephesus during the reign of Trajan, approximately 100 A.D., give a year or two. Now, the final thing I want to say about John is that he was the apostle of love. His love for Christ is unquestioned. He was one of the inner circle. He wrote affectionately to his fellow believers, referring to them as beloved and as my little children. And he called repeatedly that the brethren would love one another. And John is called the apostle of love because he truly did love and enjoy the love of the Lord Jesus in his heart. John was the only apostle referred to 
as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't love the others. But there was something drawing the Savior to John. And John was the favorite to his Lord. Does the Lord have favorites? I think he does. I think there are Christians here tonight that enjoy the presence, the blessedness of the Savior in your soul that others have yet to enter into. John was the only disciple that remained at the cross when the Lord Jesus died on that tree. His writings, what shall we say about John's writings? Remarkable for love. And John is renowned for being the disciple who lay on Jesus' breast. Now, that does not make him weak, and it does not make him effeminate. Every inch of John from head to toe were a man. It's not for naught that he and John were called the sons of Boanerges. It's not for naught that they are the ones who cried to have very fire to come down from heaven. There are a number of stories about John that highlight his manliness. One is a report that is given by Polycarp, who was a contemporary of John, of a corrupt man called Corinthus. He was a cruel, vicious, ungodly wretch. John the Apostle was entering into the bathhouse, a place of washing. And Corinthus came in. John fled, and he said, Let us fly, lest the bathhouse fall down, because Corinthus, the enemy of the truth, is inside. And you'll find in 1 John many references to the truth. John was always on the side of truth. There's another story of John's care for a young man, and this is recorded by Clement of Alexandria. Again, I found this in Fairbairn's Dictionary. While addressing the brethren in a city near Ephesus, the Apostle John was drawn to the attention of a young man, a youth of noble appearance, and he committed him to the special care of the pastor of that place. The pastor took him in to be educated, trained him, and finally admitted him to the Lord's church after baptism. After this, the pastor stepped back from caring for the young man. He lost out. He became a ruffian. He renounced all hope in the grace of God 
and he organized a band of robbers, and he set himself at the head of those robbers and became renowned for cruelty. The Apostle John, later visiting the city, he inquired for the young man, and the pastor said to the Apostle John, he's dead. He's dead to God. He's no longer spiritually alive. And John protested. He said, what? What kind of care have I put that young man under? Did you not care for his soul? And John secured a horse and a guide, and he rode into the mountains, and he rode into the dens of the robbers, and he asked to be taken to their captain, the young man. The young man, seeing the apostle John, was filled with shame. And John said, what are you, filled of shame of an old man like me? What has happened to you? And with all his heart and with all his love, he encouraged that young man to give up his life of crime and repent and come back to God. With many such words he prevailed upon the prodigal, and he finally led him back to the church, pleaded with him, strove with him in fasting, urged him with admonitions, and never forsook him until he was able to restore him to the church, an example of sincere repentance and genuine renewal. There's a great model of pastoral care. Do we run after souls? as John, the apostle of love, who wouldn't give up. When John became a very old man, he could no longer walk to the meetings. He was carried in his chair by a number of young men. And as he entered in amongst the congregation, he would say repeatedly, My little children, love one another. And again, my little children love one another. And when asked why he constantly repeated the same words, he would reply, because this is the command of the Lord, and because enough is done if this one thing is done, to love one another. John's love was God first, others second, self last. Repeatedly in 1 John, he exhorted, love one another, my little children, love one another. And that's the thing that is greatly needed in the church. The four things of the New Testament church was simplicity, communion, evangelism, and love. That's what got those Christians through their trials, the love of the people of God. Let's close tonight with 1 John 3 and verse 16. 1 John 3, 16, Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us, 
and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Here's another John 3.16. That one should click with you. That's one we should remember and rejoice in. And you'll notice we are to love one another to lay down our lives for the brethren. That means bearing hurt, bearing pain, bearing shame, and being willing to sacrifice. Let's take our pastoral theology from John. Let's do this this week. Love one another to the point where we lay down our lives for one another with sacrifice, with cost, sacrificial living that comes from the love of Christ burning in our hearts. That's the example of John. Would you be like him, an apostle of love? If you know what Christ has done for you, if Jesus Christ be God and died for us, then there is no sacrifice too great for us to make for him. May the Lord lead us tonight to become apostles of love. We're going to sing the closing hymn, 469, Take Time to Be Holy. Take Time to Be Holy, 469. I think this one will encourage us to be like John.
Lord, tonight we pray Thou wilt give us tender hearts. Fill us with Thy wonderful love, that the love of Jesus may melt us and make us the men and women, young people we ought to be, and that we might be Your instruments and Your vessels. We pray for the infilling of the Holy Spirit and that You will be glorified in us this week to come. And now dismiss us with your blessing, and may the grace of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be with your redeemed people now and evermore. Amen.